Jeffrey, going back to before you were a Hollywood screenwriter, what made you think you could tell stories on a Hollywood level? What gave you that confidence or that feeling, that intuition that, you know what, this is something I think I can do? Um, I think it's the ignorance of the young. <laughs> I mean, um, you know, I talked to a, a friend of mine once, um, it was probably a couple of years ago when I was home, and she said when I was like eight or nine, she asked me what I wanted to do when I grew up, and I said I wanted to be a movie star. So I kind of always knew I wanted to work in film. Um, I was growing up thought I wanted to be an actor, um, and I went to New York to study acting actually at the beginning of my career, and that didn't pan out really because non-traditional casting wasn't a thing back in the early 90s. Um, and they canceled the Cosby show, so then non-traditional casting, that was like your only place. Um, so then English was my second favorite subject, and I'd been writing, you know, from the time I was young, I just always would write stories, and my English teachers were kind of my biggest inspirations as far as school goes. Um, so I was like, well, I'll just write stuff to be in. So that's kind of why I segued into writing. But um, you just, when you're younger, you don't think of, you know, Hollywood does seem like this faraway magical place in a way, but you also are very naive about how the movie business is. So you think, oh, you just, you write something and somebody likes it and then they go out and pick up a camera and they make it and then it comes out in the theater. And that's kind of, when you're younger, that's kind of all you could think about. You don't know ex the whole like convoluted, twisted process of screenwriting and, you know, getting something from page to screen when you're young. So you're kind of in that magical like illusion land where you can say, I can do it, you know. Um, so yeah, that's... I, again, the writing wasn't always my wasn't my first goal, but but move, working in movies has always been pretty much just what I've wanted to do my whole life. So that's kind of my only career game plan. Boy, how small was the town that you grew up in? Um, we had like a, I think a hundred students in our graduating class. I almost feel like I should Google that. I should know that. It was a very small town. It took us. It was a for like a forty minute bus ride to get to school every day. Oh wow! So we were like the last stop out in the out in the hills, so it was eastern Kentucky. So it was a very small town. They didn't have a theater program. Like my English teacher, when I was a sophomore, I talked her into creating a theater program for like once, the the one uh, year, and then it kind of died out after that year. But um, yeah, I was I was pretty determined. You know, it's, it's very interesting when you're young and you're driven, because um, you, that's one of the things you try to tell people to hold on to, because it, it, as you get a little older, you know, that. The drive doesn't necessarily go away, but it's, you know, the realities of the business and the distractions can kind of get in your way. So when you're young, you just have that, that boundless like energy and faith and optimism and, um, you know, it's, you try to hold on to that magic, you know, even when you start getting into the business side of things. Right, because as you get older, you kind of talk yourself out of it knowing all the things that can go wrong. Right. And it, it's almost a shame. I mean, there's, that's, there's like this protective part that is there for that reason but then yeah, yeah talk and I think, of it. you know you know and, it, and it's nobody encourages a career in the arts like if you tell anybody when you're young you want to be an actor or a writer they're always saying well you know that's great what are you going to do for a real job like that's pretty much the reaction my mom did not know that I majored in theater in college till after I was in college like I told her I was majoring in, in math and she got so mad when she found out I majored in theater because she's like you're never going to be able to make a living doing that and um you, you know so there is a reality, but for me, like, again, I just never had a backup plan. So, you know, I, Eng, Eng, you know, luckily I was good in English and writing was, was another passion of mine. So I found a way to stay in the business um, and not give up when the acting didn't kind of pan out as soon as I had hoped it, it would. So, um, but yeah, people like, well, usually tell anybody who says they want to be in the film business or any kind of art, they're like, oh, that'll be a good hobby. What are you going to do for a real job? And so that's kind of just part of our society. We don't really value, I think. And, 
in this country, I think in other countries, they do value the arts more than we do here, but usually arts programs are the first things that get cut in schools. Um, you know, it's like sports, number one, then science and math and stuff, and then the arts are usually kind of down here as far as, as um, priorities go, which is, which is interesting, because I think the arts are probably one of the more helpful, just to help you as a, as a human being to kind of grow and like expand your horizons, open your mind, and just, you know, also get in touch with your emotions. Um, a lot of stuff that a lot of the other fields don't really emphasize or help you do. I think the arts, that's why a lot of people love the arts. But um, it is, you know, that's something I think we have to start valuing a lot more um, in our country. It's funny you mentioned sports because I think I heard you say in another interview, and, and I laughed out loud when I heard it, that um, people that are into horror probably weren't people that were playing sports. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in, in, they weren't the cheerleaders and they weren't the jocks. Yeah, and I, I, yeah. I thought that was great because it's true, you develop this, this interesting imagination that when you're in that sort of herd mentality trying to be popular, right. all that probably isn't, isn't going through your mind. So right. maybe you and can talk a, about that. And there's a lot too. I mean, you know, if you're an athlete too, like that's your whole life. Like you're always practicing, you're always, you know, when you're not at school practicing, you're practicing at home, you're watching what you eat, you're working out, you're, so that's your whole life. So you don't, yeah, I think, uh, you know, most of the people that I know who are artists, you know, they spend most of their time at home, like, you know, watching movies or reading comic books or, you know, doing kind of nerdy, geeky things, like just, you know, you know, really playing in their imagination or with their imagination. And um, I think that's a kind of a common thing you find, you'll find with artists is, you know, a lot of artists will, you know, didn't have like a big click that they hung out with or weren't, weren't really, you know, super popular. And some of them were, but, um, but again, it is, you know, especially in high school, it's cause I know it's like school's like a machine, you know, you have so many people, it's very important obviously to get an education, but you have so many kids going through every year that you don't have time to like, everybody's got their own individual personality and you can't really get to know people. So you gotta have to shove them in boxes to like, you know, just to process people. It's a, you know, it's a weird thing that I've noticed as we grow up cause people still try to, generalize you know in, in a way and so that's even when i talk when i joke it's not even joke but when i talk about like you know the jocks and the cheerleaders aren't the ones that were home watching a lot of horror movies it's also because they were out practicing and doing sure, doing sure. their thing mm -hmm. um but it's interesting how we still kind of keep those boxes as we, as we get older and and you know i sound a little bit like a hippie right now but I don't no, know. no 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 I, I found it i thought it was funny because yeah. i mean there's a lot of truth to it so you know how many screenplays did you write before Final Destination? Uh, I think about seven. And these were um, feature? Yeah, oh. yeah, seven features um, of varying degrees, starting from really awful to okay to good. Because, <laughs> um, yeah, I wrote my first one when I was um, in middle school, no, high school. And I sent it to New Line Cinema to get coverage on. And they're like, oh, I got great coverage, but it's not right for us. And then when I started working at New Line, like five years later, I dug the coverage up. And they were like, this is awful. It was obviously written by a middle schooler. And I was like, I was in high school. So um, it's interesting because I, I always just tell people, like, that's why you, you can't take rejection when you get it. Because if I'd have seen that coverage when I was that in high school, I probably would have just been like, oh, I don't have any talent. I would have given up. Um, but you also have to be open to growing, you know, because I also meet a lot of young people and, you know, God bless them, you know, but they just, they think that they're already there. They're like, you know, I, you know, I'm a, like, this script, script is the best thing, you know, Hollywood's ever going to make. And it's like, you're 15. I'm sure that I, with all due respect, I'm sure that's not the best thing that Hollywood is going to read. So, you know, you need to kind of let your ego go and realize that you have to have to grow. So I was very, I wrote a lot. Um, I didn't, again, just learning. It's a learning process, but I just 
it was a when I was young, it was just a lot of fun, you know, just to write. And then you know, you start learning structure as you get you know older. And then when you start working in a studio, then all of a sudden you start realizing, oh, there's a hard craft to this that you need to kind of learn too. So it's mixing the business with the creative. And this was a script based loosely on like Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, that was one I that was a treatment I wrote when I was fourteen, mm -hmm. which I wrote. Um, got into Hello Cat. See a little visitor here. Um, <laughs> that I wrote for A Nightmare on Elm Street, and that's what got me in touch with uh, New Line Cinema when I was 14. Um, and I stayed in touch with them until I was 19, and I started interning there uh, when I was 19. And so, yeah, they made they made Final Destination when I was 30, just to date myself. But um, but um, wow. the first, uh, Final Destination originally started off as a spec script to get an agent for an X-Files episode, because they want you to write something, you know, of your own, and they also want you to write something uh, that's already on TV so that you can show you can write in different characters' voices. So I wrote it as an X-Files episode. Um, and I didn't submit it to the show because one of my friends at New Line said this will make a great feature. And then I worked on it and it ironically ended up with two guys um, who worked on the X-Files, James Wong and Glenn Morgan. So it was kind of a, I think, I think it was kind of a karmic thing, you know, that's kind of meant to be with the X-Files connection there. I'm curious though, what is keeping in touch? Was that like that's fascinating to me oh, as for, um, a fourteen-year-old? Like, yeah, I'm just going to be keeping in touch with New Line. Well, no, but, well, because I, because I, you know, Bob Shea. At first, he didn't read my treatment because it was unsolicited, and then I wrote him kind of a snarky, not snarky, but you know, kind of a, you know, I was like, hey, I've, I've seen three of your movies, and I spent money on you. I think you can take five minutes to read my story. Oh, and great, so, I love it. Yeah, so, um, so he did, and you know, uh, got back to me, and and then his assistant would, st you know, her name is Joy Mann. She's like just amazing woman she, we, uh, she passed years ago unfortunately but just amazing woman and she would send me like movie posters and like little you know merchandising things from the movies and she would send me scripts to read so I just would stay in touch with them and send them scripts and you know they were always very very gracious um, to even spend time with me um, and then when I, they, I, I don't know if they ever knew I was actually going to get to New York or not but I ended up at my college I was pretty crafty I should be craftier I'd make a good super villain if I if I use my craftiness for evil but um when I was in college, we started. I had them do a special program where I could go to New York for the summer to study acting at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, and then would get credit for it. So they, the school paid for my whole trip to New York and my whole summer there. But then I got an internship at New Line while I was up there and got an agent. I was like, ah, oh, screw school, um, and decided to stay to stay in New York and stay at New Line. So, so that so it was they knew you were sixteen or however old you were when you sent the script in uh, the first yeah, time. I think yeah, Joy. I think I don't know if I ever. I don't know when I told Joy how old I was. I think she asked me once because I, I I would call her too. I got the phone number from information, so I would just call her and she would she would talk to me. It was That's so great. great. Yeah, nice. I mean, and, and this was back when New Line was you know I mean Nightmare had come out, so they were they were definitely growing, but they hadn't turned into like the powerhouse that they that they became. But um, you, you know, I, it definitely wouldn't that wouldn't happen today. But um, you know, it's it was a real blessing. I mean, I you know I always give credit to Bob and and Joy for you know just. If they hadn't stayed in touch with me and, and right. inspired me and then brought me on as an intern when I first started, you know, in, when I went to New York. I mean, I'm sure I still would have been in the business. Like, that just was my path, I think. But, um, but yeah, they were, they were really crucial. And I miss New... I mean, Warner Brothers, like, absorbed New Line. So, it, you know, it's not the same place anymore. But it was, it was probably one of the best, I think, studios probably to ever be built. Because it was so artist-friendly uh, and, you know... They really cared about like the. I mean, Bob Shea was a huge film lover. Like he started distributing like John Waters films out of his apartment to college campuses and doing like these tour. Like so, he's a huge film lover. So he created this company that was full of film lovers, 
Um, and now you have a lot of great companies, but a lot of them are run by business people um, who don't love film. So they, they understand the equations of like, you know, well, if I put this formula together, it'll make money, but they don't understand the creative side of it. And New Line was just a, just a wonderful, like, fostering environment to work. So, um, yeah, I got really lucky with that one. So your first year there as an intern, you were 19? Yeah. Do you remember what that was like? I mean, it must have been surreal because here's this group of people that first they turned you down, but then they keep in touch with you and they send you things and now you're there. It's, um, it's, it was, it was surreal in a way, but it was kind of, it's a weird thing. Cause just because I always knew I was going to be working in the movie business somehow, like I didn't get, I wasn't like super, like it would hit me sometimes, but it didn't, it hit me when like when I found that coverage for that first thing I wrote, I was like, wow, if, if I'd have read this, if they'd have told me the truth, I might not be here. But because it was kind of all happening and you're, again, when you're younger, you know, you're still like 19, you're still at that like, I can do anything in the world and nothing can stop me. And, you know, so I never, I always I have always been so appreciative of, of the opportunity, but I, I wasn't like I was ever surprised. Um, you know, but it was cool. It was really cool. Like, because I got to meet all the people from Nightmare on Elm Street. And so t meeting all these people that I had grown up idolizing was like cool. And I remember we were at the seven, New Line did, you know, seven, this amazing movie with uh, Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman. And we were at the premiere for that. And all of a sudden I'm talking to Morgan Freeman for like an hour. And I'm like, you know, because they teach you when you work there, like don't act weird around when the celebrities come in because they would come in all the time for meetings. So you'd, just, you'd learn how to like kind of shut that geeky part off of your brain. Right, right. Sometimes. But then I... You know, I had lunch with Jane Badler, who was in V, the miniseries that came out in, in the 80s, who played Diana, the, the evil, like, lizard alien queen. And that, I, like, I had lunch with her, and that was the first time I've actually been starstruck, where, I, like, I couldn't talk. Like, it was ridiculous, because I never knew what starstruck meant until I had lunch with her, and then I was like, I can't talk right now, and I can't, this is really embarrassing, and I'm a grown man, and why am I acting <laughs> like this? Um, but, yeah, it's, it's, um, it, again, it was a, it was a, it was a wonderful thing, and, and, it was a wonderful convergence of again the right people like Bob and Joy like taking the time because even you know Bob could have just written in that one thing and written me off and Joy could have been like oh that's cute and you know but you know she did she would stay in touch with me and I probably just poor one I probably bugged the hell out of her I was always like see can you read this can you do it? <laughs> and she was just very patient and and yeah just it was yeah it was a wonderful experience it really was so then if I understand this right that Final Destination was the first screenplay that you actually sold. Um, first one? That was the first one I sold. I wrote one. Um, it never got made, but I was actually hired to write a sequel for a movie called Pumpkinhead, which is one of my favorites. And they're remaking it now, um, so hopefully I can use my I, sequel idea for the sequel for the remake. But um, I got hired actually before I had an agent. I got hired because um, Brad Cravoy was a producer, um, and yeah, he was taking pitch meetings, and and I wrote a pitch that he liked, and he basically hired me and another writer to write drafts of the script and then they ended up the company got bought by somebody and all this so neither one of our scripts ever got made um but no that was my first uh, paying job as a writer which was fun um that was a little crazy because you're like wow i'm writing something that i grew up loving um so that was the first thing that i actually sold and and i and i'd written like five or six seven scripts before before final destination that never got so and rightly so for some of them when you go back and read them it's like whoa these are pretty pretty bad, but there's a couple of them that still have like nuggets of ideas that I might turn into something someday. Um. 
So then, what? I'm just wondering how how did it happen? What was the what were the details? So you're working at New Line. They've oh, known um, you for years. They know me for years. Mm-hmm. You know, I had the TV. I was trying to get a TV agent, and then my friend Mark Kaplan was like, "Oh, this would make a great idea for a feature." Um, so I back in the back in the day, you could actually sell a treatment to a studio. You know, you didn't have to write a whole script, and because I worked at the studio, I knew how um, the when the winds would change very frequently like so you know something would be hot one week and not the next week so i was like well let me write a treatment because it's a great concept and then i'll some friends of mine worked for a producer outside of the studio that had to deal with the studio so i'm like let me work with them and their producer partner and then bring the idea back to the studio because i knew that would give me a better chance of getting it set up if it was with a producer attached so i you know had the treatment but then and it was about they were all adults um and then Scream came out, and I love Scream, and Kevin Williams is a, a dear friend of mine, but the minute that came out, it's like, well, let's make them all teenagers. So then I had to go through and rewrite the treatment to make them teenagers. Um, and then the studio's like, they just couldn't get their head around death being the killer. They're like, this, it's a great, it's cool, but how can you make death a killer? You, that just doesn't make any sense. I'm like, that's the whole point. Like, it's it's death, you can't. So they, pa- they the studio just kept passing on it, and finally the producers, it was uh, Warren Zide and uh, Craig Perry, um, they were like, well, if you don't, if you pass on it again, we're going to go to Dimension, which was kind of New Line's rival, Miramax at the time. Um, and so they're like, we'll buy it. <laughs> <laughs> you said the so, magic words. So, yeah. so then they bought the treatment, then they hired me to write the this, the first draft of the script, and then we went out to directors after that. So um, it was a pretty quick process, I and mean, we sold the original story in '97. The movie came out in 2000. So that's a in Hollywood time, that's pretty pretty fast. So when you did the casting for it, how did you find the lead? Uh, they actually New Line did all the all the casting through their casting department. I mean, I you know I'd put the, a list together of like my dream cast um, at the time, but you know I I love the cast that we ended up with, and it's funny because I'm friends with Devin, you know he he's directing now and he's got a new TV show on, and so I directed his or produced his first uh, short that he directed, and he's a really talented guy. So we've actually reconnected in the last few years, and he's just a he's just a great guy. But um, it is funny because when I was writing the movie, I was kind of you know trying to turn some of the tropes on their heads, and so there's. You know, there's very few movies that have like a final guy in it. It's always a final girl. So I wanted to write a movie with like a final guy in it. Um, and his character, I think, is definitely stands out as, you know, he, you know, he's such a great actor too. Did a great job. And he was Casper, so it's always, it's just very funny making fun of him because he was in Casper floating around with Christina Ricci and they were kids <laughs> dancing. It was ridiculous. Devin, if you're watching this, ridiculous. Um, <laughs> I would see I him in so many things, like because I used to go into Blockbuster all the time. Yeah. I just remember, you know, there he was again. And, yeah. You know, so yeah. yeah. But no, but at a, that that time was he? Yeah, he was really he was really he was really hot then too. I think he'd um he'd um oh man, there's something north. I'm blanking on the name of it, but um, it was a group. Of, it was a, some coyotes and kids in the wilderness. I'm totally right. not going to move you up, but it was a it was a, it was a really big movie. It was Casper, and then the, that one he did Idle Hands. I think Idle Hands might have been, mm-hmm. I don't know if that was pre or post Final Destination. I think it might have been post Final Destination. But yeah, he was definitely like on everybody's like, yeah. you know, ones to watch list. So, right. And we know. shot it in Canada, so we got a lot of Canadian talent oh, okay. uh, for the film as well. Does horror screenplay structure different from drama? I don't necessarily think so. I mean, I think all screenplays kind of follow the basic three act kind of save the cat kind of structure i think the biggest difference with horror is is they do want kills pretty frequently so you know the the standard rule is like every 10 pages they want to have either a really scary scene or a kill um so in drama it's not like you have to have like a super dramatic moment every 
10 minutes like you can have you can build the drama and you can still do that in horror as well but a, a lot of times just the formula at some point you know i can't tell you how many projects i've been on where they're like hey it's been a while since somebody died <laughs> yeah nobody's died here in a while so uh they want to throw another death in there so then you have to add in a character to kill off so um right but you know i think all the screen you know it's like i think comedies are very close to horror because it's always building up to a joke and horror you're building up to a kill but with comedies it's a lot it's a lot of you know more jokes and with horror again you have more of a, a pacing with your with your kills um but they all do follow the same general structure but usually you know the joke in horror when it's like well what's this character's motivation it's like to get away from the guy with a knife you know it's like that's pretty much it for a lot of horror right well i'm dating myself with all this but i think it seems like friday the 13th there were definitely more kills but if you look at like carrie which i know you brought that up that yeah she doesn't really get her revenge until the very end which it would have been nicer to see her do it sooner right right and then the exorcist that i guess took a long time yeah but the omen was pretty that's the thing is like they yeah movies and it's all they blame it kind of on, on add now everybody's like you know so overly you know overloaded with information that they can't concentrate so that they act like the quiet movies don't work anymore but then you see something like get out which was definitely not like a gore fest at all or even like the early conjuring films like didn't have like you know a lot of like it wasn't like a kill every 10 minutes so people still want to go see a good story and they like suspense and dread um but it really depends on what what you're writing if you're writing a splatter kind of friday the 13th movie which for that one they just want blood and pretty people getting hacked up um and or if you're doing like a conjuring which is more like they want people want to go and you know just feel that dread and jump and scream and you know without the body parts flying around Right. I think Nightmare on Elm Street too. There was many more kills, but I was just yeah. wondering if the kills have increased now because of yeah. what you're saying. Yeah, ADD. I think it it depends on the filmmaker. Like, I think if a studio is behind something, they definitely want to kind of stick with formula and, and make sure. I mean, I've had that note on a couple of projects I've written. I, mean, I, did, I did. I'm finishing one for a French company, and um, there they. I have more Leo with them because they're. You know, they they let me develop the character a little bit more than I think I would if this was if it was an American film. But I still have enough good scares in there but there's not a lot of like gore um and i again and i love writing gory stuff and i love writing non-gory stuff too so i think it's just fun to try to scare people in ways that i haven't seen them get scared before how important is screenplay structure to your overall writing i mean is there a specific structure you try to follow i try to i i found because i i kind of learned how to write through reading a ton of scripts like at New Line when I was there I just read all scripts all the time so I find that most of my stuff does kind of fall into the you know traditional like three act structure save the cat thing where that's the inciting incident I don't get into there's some stuff and I, I, don't, I shouldn't roll my eyes at it because people do but you know there's some books that are like well you have to have they have like they've broken it down to like super micro science and for me it's just like oh, it's just too much like you know in a way you don't want to beat the creativity out of somebody by giving them too much of a structure you know, I think that's why I think the three-act structure is enough where, yes, you know, at the end of your second act, something's got to, like, propel you into the third act, and, you know, things have got to get, you know, more intense and more intense to your finale, but, you know, I think a lot of times, even, like, I have a lot of friends that go to film school, and the, their one thing is, like, they're like, I wish I had spent that money to make a film, because um, they just, they're like, we would have learned a lot more, and it's not, you know, anything against going to film school, but it's just, again, if you're trying to teach somebody somebody who's artistic how to you can teach them how to channel that into a format that's going to be more palpable to the masses but if you start getting too much into like 
you, you know, on page 20, this has to happen. On page 30, this has to happen. Then you're like stifling people's creativity in a way. But there is a reason that there is a structure like that sometimes because I had friends give me a script and like the first draft's like 140 pages. I'm like, I'm not reading. <laughs> this is not a script. This is like a mini series. Like, they're like, oh, but if you don't understand, it's like if they can tell the Titanic in 120 pages, I'm sure you can tell your story about a woman who's trying to find true love in her small town <laughs> in less than 140 pages. So, um, you know, there, there, there is a wisdom to the, the basic structure. But I'll, when I sit down to write something, usually I start with a concept. I'm very concept driven just because I think that's working at a studio for so long. I know that the concept is what's going to get people's attention or not get it. So I start with usually a concept. Um, and then think of some scares as well and then start you know with the, building a story around the concept um, is how i approach it but i know a lot of people start from like characters and some people start from a story so it's everybody's got their own personal kind of creative style and how they how, on how they work but for me i always i always start with the concept of the story um and i try to think at least of a concept that's kind of high concept that you can kind of if you tell somebody in a minute and they're, they're like oh that sounds cool you know um, so that's, that's kind of where I start off when I'm writing. What do studio executives and producers say about story structure? Or do they not? Is it just, this isn't working here? Or do they narrow it down? Um, I think it depends. I mean, it's, every studio is so different now. And the studios have honestly, they've changed so much since when I started off. Like I said, a, a lot of them, you know, are run by business people with no creative background at all. So, you know, they're... You know, it sound like they're relying on their creative team, um, and that's not that's not every studio by by any means, but but it it has gotten a lot more business oriented. So I've been in a lot of meetings where it's like, this isn't working for me. I don't know why, but it's just not. And they so they don't know, they just know that they don't like it. And so then you have to like try to fish around to kind of figure out what they don't like about it um, or what's not working for them. And and a lot of times it's 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 just a very interesting business because you meet so many interesting types and you meet some really great, smart, creative people, but you also meet some people who got their jobs and then you're like how is this person like working you know I don't understand because they obviously know nothing about film um and I'm not even saying that like some of it's like sometimes ridiculous where they'll say well can you put like can you make all the people 13 it's like well they're carrying machine guns oh, and great. machetes and fighting monsters so that might look a little <laughs> ridiculous with the 13 year old with his machine gun like well just try it you know so a lot of times you'll get notes like that or they'll give you a really crazy note that will derail your like I don't think a lot of people understand like you know you do knit a screenplay together so if yeah if you pull a string out over here it does have an effect in other places so a lot of times they'll be like well just you know my my the producer's sister wants a part so uh just give that girl a, a best friend and just put her in one scene I'm like well then it wouldn't be her best friend if she's only one scene um but then that affects all this other stuff and they don't we'll just make it work so you'll get that a lot of times where it's like they'll give you like a really crazy note so what I've learned to do over the many many years now um, is is you have to be a little passive aggressive with them, and you have you because they do at the end of the day, everybody working in the business at least wants to be heard, and you try to again decipher what their note means if their note sounds stupid. Like if they're if they're saying you know, well if they're just telling you to put somebody's friend in the movie, that's that's not a creative note. But if they're like, well, we think there just needs to be a cat. We just want to, I want a cat here, and you you try to think, well, why do they feel it's so important to have a cat here? And then it's like, well, okay, maybe there's like some emotion that's missing here, or there's like you know. Because when you see a cat, it just gives you the warm fuzzies. That maybe there's something that's missing in this scene that they want. So a lot of times, if you go back to to them and you say, "Well, I, th you said you wanted a cat here, but what I think you were going for was that you're not feeling this and this and this." And they're like, "Yeah, that's what I mean." Um, so a lot of it is kind of deciphering what what they say. But as far as structure itself goes, I mean, 
they'll they'll know structure a lot of times but other times it's like it's committee stuff so you know they'll have a reader cover a script first you know so if the reader doesn't like it then a lot of times it won't even go to a development executive or creative executive creative executive likes it they'll give it to somebody higher up if somebody else higher up it's like it likes it they'll put it on their weekend read which means that all the executive team will read it and that's still a roll of the dice if they're going to like you know um, so it's it's a it's a tough business, but the great thing is there's so many other pl- companies out there besides the major studios that you can go. Um, that's why I always tell people to focus on because um, getting into the studio is just really hard because it it really it's a machine now. Like and so they're all putting out remakes and sequels and things based on comic books and video games, and so all their original content goes to their. You know, if Chris Nolan wants to make Inception, yes, they will give him money. But then they're like, well, our slot's full. You know, you know, we've got all of the Marvel movies coming out for five years now. and One, one movie that's not a Marvel movie. So, um, yeah, they don't care so much about structure. It's, a, it's more of a business model, I think, a, a lot with the studios. So you learn that, and that helps you take your ego out a lot of stuff so you don't take it personally because it really, it really is a business. I think they do care more about business models than they do st- script structure. Do you know when that changed? I mean, I, I realize you probably can't say yes. It was two thousand one on yeah, this date. Yeah. No. I mean, I think it. I think it started to change in the nineties. You know, I think it started changing in the, like because when I started working at New Line, it was in the early nineties, and it was those. I think you know, sixties was very. You know, that's a lot of times when you know, sixty, seventy. I think a lot of that was creative, um, but I think in the nineties, as I think when a lot of the corporations started wanting to be in the movie business. So then you had like, you know, Ted Turner buying like, you know, the studio and then, you know, Warner Brothers buying the studio and then then everything just started turning into big corporations. And, um, you know, then the, when you're, it does, you know, this is no offense to business people, but when you're business minded, that's all you think about is your bottom line. It's like, well, how can I, you know, how can I tick off as many boxes to make sure this movie has the widest appeal as opposed to like, if I make this really good movie, even though I don't get it at all, you know, I'm going to take a chance on it because I trust that there will be enough people that will watch it. Like, that's why I love New Line Cinema, um, you know, because Bob Shea really fostered that. It was very maverick, you know, thinking back then. And Mike DeLuca was one of the, really one of the best development executives, I think, that ever worked at a studio. I mean, he was, you know, he would do a movie and, you know, like a movie like Blade, he would, they'd be like, who wants to see a black vampire slayer? Well, a lot of people, you know, who wants to see a movie about a guy that puts on a mask and he's, you know, can do all this great, who wants to see him, you know, like about these two really dumb guys, you know, like he would come up, he would really champion all these movies that most studios would never, ever take a chance on, but he got the, he got it. He's like, no, trust, you have to trust me on this. Like people will go see these movies and you don't see that, that um, fearlessness much anymore in studios. And that's just, they just like to play it safe and that's again you can just see it from their slates that's why they're you know they're remaking remakes now and um you know the thinking is well if it's if people know the title then that gives us a leg up over an original film so it's a safer business proposition so it's kind of that's why a lot of people are like going to tv now is because that's where you can go and be creative and you know they're spending almost as much on tv stuff as they're spending on movies now and you can have really great creative storytelling and not be like stifled. So back when you were at New Line, do you remember the that people would know sort of character arc and, and it was much more about the craft of writing that they could understand and dissect certain parts and why they didn't like it? Do you remember? Um, yeah, no, I think, I think in the, yeah, I think in the development meetings there was definitely like, there was stuff that people, the notes were definitely much more like, this isn't working because of, yeah, it's not, 
the creative stuff isn't being satisfied in it. Whereas later on, it was just like, I don't like it, or there's not a big actor attached, or I can't make a toy out of it. Um, but, you know, even New Line, they, they started a division called Fine Line that was more for their art house films that didn't, you know, fit the traditional blockbusters, you know, structure or, 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 you know, would probably win an Academy Award, but would probably not make a lot of money. So they created a division, especially to let, like, auteur filmmakers do their thing, you know, without having to worry about, is this going to make $100 million at the box office or not? So, um, yeah, they were, that was part of the, just a film lover kind of company, like creating like an offshoot to make like kind of artsy films that, uh, that most people would read the script and be like, what is this? Helen Hunt with a piano and her daughter on, sitting on a, <laughs> in the middle of nowhere? Well, that doesn't make any sense, so. Do you remember the first movie you saw in the theater? Um, I don't actually, which is really, really weird. I remember seeing Nightmare on Elm Street when I, in, in 84, um, in Kentucky? In Kentucky. I remember seeing that. Yeah. Um, when you were there? Sorry to interrupt, but did yeah. you think, okay, I, were you already thinking of writing this other script? No, I just oh, thought this is the best oh. movie I've ever seen in my life. Because mm-hmm. it was a double feature. It was like Alone in the Dark, which New Line put out as well, which was a slasher movie about some escaped mental, com- you know, mental patients who get out during a storm one night. Jack Palance was in it and terrorized like a town in this house. And and so Nightmare on Street was a second movie after that. So the first one was scary, but it was, I mean, Nightmare on Elm Street, when, especially when you're 14, is like, it was just brilliant. Like, I was like, what the hell is this movie? Um, so it just kind of blew my mind. So it's, it is funny. I almost, I mean, I remember seeing like Salem's Lot on TV, but it is funny as far as movie theaters go. For some reason, my brain is just, oh no, I do remember. I don't, this isn't the first one I saw. Um, this is awful, but they used to do these like, they used to do these movies and they were, they were rated R movies, but they were stupid like, pom-pom girls or something <laughs> some cheerleaders pom- so my cousins and my mom of all people this is my mom was a little bit of a hippie um they would take us to the drive-in and they would sneak us in but they would make us turn our backs to the screen during any nudity stuff but but we'd sit with like a little picnic i remember i remember i don't remember the name of the movie it was something in the pom-pom girls or some cheerleaders I, that i think that was the first drive-in movie i remember seeing but i remember at least me and my sister spent most of our time with our back to the <laughs> to the screen eating eating popcorn and hot dogs and stuff but um yeah i remember that because we had to they had to sneak us in the theater under it nice like a good old hippie <laughs> living <laughs> if you were to get notes and maybe they wouldn't put it in these terms but to dumb down a script oh yeah i've had that happen oh you have okay in those oh. exact words okay <laughs> so what is dumbing it down and what would that be and what is like bring raising the vibration if you want to use a yeah. hippie term <laughs> no i mean um I, I wrote a script um, and uh, returned to Cabin by the Lake. Actually, it was a TV movie, and um, it was a sequel. And Judd Nelson was in the first one, and so they got the, him back and the director back based on my script. And literally, the uh, one of the creative executives like called the producer probably about a month before they started shooting, and was like, "You know, we think the script's just too smart uh, for our audience, so we're going to bring somebody in to to, to dumb it down." Um, and so all that meant was that they just went for the very generic with the characters just the base generic stuff so it's like it was based on a the first movie was based on a killer who needed inspiration so he started murdering people in this he lived in a cabin by the lake and would murder people women and drown them in the lake and then he would write about it um so i wrote a script that was about them making a movie about the the first movie so it was kind of very screamish and um so like in my script this is just one simple instance but in my script like 
he was dating the lead actress and so all these other actresses were like throwing themselves at the director and he was like in love with the, the leading actress so he and they're like well what? He, you know he should be sleeping with all the actresses i'm like but that's like the obvious that's just the most obvious stereotype like i'm trying to do something different so they may you know so that's dumbing it down it's like going for just the base like simplest thing we can do with no nuance um and i think if you if you when i've gotten notes that the script needs to be elevated it's just because i haven't done enough work on the characters um you know there's a not a, there's not enough depth of their interactions their interactions maybe are very on the surface in some scenes um or the story is very maybe there's points in the story they're very on the nose so i think there i think nuance is usually when they won't when i'm asked to elevate something it's either to add more layers or to add more nuance to something but yeah dumbing it down i mean that was a prime example where it's just like they they're like ah, he should just be sleeping with everybody because you know he's a director and the producer should be doing coke and the, you know so it was just and it, so it was and so they brought one of their people on today like they didn't even tell me and the producer would not even she, i asked her to send me this a screener of the, of the script and um she's like i can't i'm like is it that bad she's like i can't <laughs> <laughs> i remember watching with some friends i was like i was sitting there like a little tear like that in the end when you litter like on the sidewalk like a little tear went down my eye i was like really I remember that but it's it's yeah. pretty funny watching it I mean it's it's a campy movie so and the director I think once he saw I think he because he signed on based off my original script and I think when he saw the shooting script he's like screw it I'm just gonna make this like a comedy and so he just like went really over the top in Gonzo with like the sound effects and everything so it's almost he almost shot like a comedy version of, of a horror movie so it's it's pretty interesting to watch now I don't I should have kept a copy it's there's like selling on eBay for like a hundred and some bucks now oh, for wow. a, I know I was like wow I should have kept a copy I never even thought about it. So, do you get more notes to dumb something down or to flesh something out? Um, I get more notes at the writing stage to flesh stuff out, but then I think when things go into production, that's when things start getting, you know, especially in horror movies, they're like, we need to get to the kills quicker. Like that's the kind of the common note that I get um, for horrors. We need to get to the kills quicker. Um, so any jokes or character stuff that they can cut out, they'll try to cut out just to get to the kills quicker. So I wouldn't even say it's dumbing it down. Unfortunately, I would just say it's. You know, they they just want to get right to the to the blood and the murder. So, is there a time frame when the movie starts? You know, how like within thirty minutes there should be conflict or whatever. So, yeah. same thing. Is there? Yeah, with a dead horror body? films, it's usually there's a, usually you have a, a death in the opening of a horror film, and then you know ten ten minutes in or fifteen minutes in you have another one, and you you kind of keep up. They want you to keep up a steady tick with them. So. It's um, interesting when movies don't do that, and I've certainly written stuff where there there hasn't been a death in the opening, um, but then people, you know, you start watching it, and it's like people want to get to that death quicker. So, if you test market it or you or do a test screen, not test market, but if you test screen the film, people might be oh, it took a while to get to that first kill, or it started off boring, and they're like, okay, they want, you know. So sometimes the answer is to actually just shoot a death scene to stick in the beginning of it. Um, so you get it out of the way. Yeah, because that'll buy you some. And I've learned to do that now, like because I've tried in other films not to do that, and I've just learned that if you if you open with a really big death, that will give you a lot of like real estate to build your story and stuff. Because people will still be thinking about that death for a good five or ten minutes, and so you've got some time to like build characters and not have to jump right into another one right away. Interesting. So instead of the hero's journey, the, the serial killer's journey. Right. <laughs> there's, there's different things that they need to follow yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah. And then, too, in terms of the, the evil character, are, is there times when, you know, it, you're making him too humanized or too, too likable? Can you tone him down and make him so you don't know what the motive or? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've written a couple of 
like thriller kind of horror movies and i think you want for me it's like you want to either have a villain that that just terrifies everybody completely or is a fun villain because they kind of relish the bad stuff they're doing so um it depends on what kind of killer they are i mean you don't want to romanticize your killers like if you know and and i try to stay away from even though i watch them and i love them but i try to stay away from more of like the torture like you know, let's like let's tie a woman up and like torture her for ten minutes, and then let's tie a guy up and torture him for ten minutes. Like I try to stay away from that kind of stuff because it just doesn't hold my interest for very long. When I was young, it did because it was bloody and that's all I cared about. But, um, but you know, if it's a killer like that, you don't want to humanize them. I don't think because that doesn't because then you're in this weird place where it's like, okay, I'm just watching this person like torture people for ninety minutes, and now you're trying to make me have sympathy for them. And, you know, it's, again, there's enough of that in real life. Like, there's enough, sure. you know, there's just enough really bad people out there in real life that I think when you go to watch a horror movie, you want to be, like, scared and entertained. But it's still, you want to escape. I think you, you don't want to go there to be reminded of, like, real life stuff. So, yeah, a real-life sociopath is going to be, like, the neighbor's like, oh, he was such a nice guy, even though he's quiet. And right. he was chopping up people. So, it's like, you don't want to necessarily have that be your, your killer in a, in a horror film. Well, going back to Carrie, though, you could see why she got to that stage. Yeah. And you, just like you had said, and I felt the exact same way, I wish she had gone to that stage earlier. Yeah. But, um, so I think with Carrie, you were able to feel maybe more empathy. Yeah. And, and she was never, I mean, because they kept, they kept, um, yeah, she had the, uh, John Travolta in, um, oh my gosh, I'm blanking on the character's name, but the mean, you know. The, the girl, yeah. The mean Not girl and, and him, you know. So you had the villains who were actually the, so she was still she was always the hero that just got pushed to the breaking point sure. and um, so you can you can have I think somebody like that you can have somebody who we we get to see turn dark because of the circumstances they're put into but if it's a kind of a traditional horror movie where you've got like the good you know the good person versus the the evil killer like I think there's you want to you want the audience to maybe understand where the person's coming from. Uh, but if you get too far into where they sympathize with them, um, like I think that's one of the reasons, the, one of the d- disagreements me and my friends have about the movie Don't Breathe, you know, I thought it was beautifully shot and well done, but I thought the, pro- I won't spoil anything for anybody, but I thought the, the protagonists, the kids, were very unlikable. Um, and then I thought the antagonists, they went too far to make you sympathize with why he was doing what he was doing. Like when you, you know, but the whole setup, this is in the previews, but when the whole setup is three kids are gonna go, bl- go rob a blind, veteran you know that kind of you're kind of setting up some characters that you're like ah we don't really like him then you find out this isn't a spoiler either that the he's got the money because his daughter got killed by a drunk driver so it's like okay you're really bad people now (laughs) like you're robbing from a blind veteran who has money because his daughter got killed by a drunk driver so it's hard to you know so they throw in beat they throw in moments in the movie where they you know flashbacks or scenes where they try to make you they try to force you to feel like some sympathy for the characters but for me it just didn't I, you know, I was just like, you you lost me at the beginning. And then they then they made the villain so so sympathetic that you actually get... I wanted him to, like, end up just killing them at the end of it, which is not, <laughs> I don't think, what you want in a movie. Uh. When do you start writing every day? About 11 o'clock. I usually roll out of bed and have my routine where I'll, you know, say some prayers, meditate a little bit, not much, um, read the news, see what's going on, and then pack up and usually go over to the coffee shop and start writing so but I'm also a night owl too so I stay up late writing so it's it's sporadic because I'm usually working juggling like four or five different things at one time so 
Um, I'm kind of hop, usually hopping around to make sure I'm kind of on top of whatever needs to be done first. How so. long are you writing for? Um, it, it's on and off and pretty much all day. I mean, you know, I'll, I'll be up late watching TV, but I still have my laptop on and writing a little bit. So, you know, I it depends. If I have a writing assignment, then I'm, uh, I'll be more structured. And then far that I'll make sure that I focus on that and then try to like have fun and have a life the rest of the time that I'm not writing. But if I'm in a stage where I'm like working on four or five different things, trying to get them off the ground, then I'm just, I'm usually writing quite a, quite a bit. Hmm, interesting. So you go to the coffee shop. Do you ever write here in this beautiful um, apartment? Sometimes, but if I stay here, I get very distracted. Like it's, you know, I want to watch TV. I want to take a nap. You know, I'm very comfortable here. So um, I like to go out to the coffee shop because I get my socializing done too because I, you know, have friends there and stuff like that. So I like to get out and do that as well. There's a lot of regulars there that write yeah. too. Oh. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of them. So nice. A lot do, of writers. <laughs> do they ask you what you're writing on, or no one really asks that? They just kind no, of. No, people. Will, yeah, people will talk to you, and especially if you go there a long time and you've made friends with people, they they kind of know what you're up to, and you know if they follow you on social media and you're talking about stuff, they'll be, they'll ask you about what you're doing and things like that. So um, yeah, it's it's a pretty it's fun. It's you know it's very transitory though too because there's a couple of regulars. But, you know, a lot of the writers will, you know, if they move, then they'll go to another coffee shop or they'll go work at, like, the WGA has a, you know, space to work at or people, like, rent spaces now, which I'm actually thinking about doing because I, I think I broke it down and some, I forgot what the place is called, but there's a company where you can, like, go rent a space, an office space, and um, I can't remember any of these names, but um, I, I, I did the math and it's like, oh, well, for the cop, cup of, a, like, a Starbucks coffee and a donut <laughs> every day, I could actually rent this place. For a month, and they have free coffee all day. But I, I drink tea, so I don't know. I have mm -hmm. to check and make sure they have tea. Um, Probably not as good as Starbucks, though. No, no, <laughs> no. But it's like it's a cool. Like you can get like an, a desk and like a right. computer, and you have your own little sp spot. So it, you know, it, and it does if you're actually leaving your place to go to work. It does kind of put you in a different mindset. Because even if I'm walking to Starbucks, even though I'm, I'm no, I'm going there to work. It's like I'm going to see my friends, and I'm going to, you know, be distracted, and you know, you never know what's going to happen. So it's it. There is some definitely some wisdom to having like a, a writing space, um, that's like an office, you know. So that's that's kind of I'll do that at some point. I haven't done that yet, but you know I'll have a place where I'll have like an office that's just a separate, you know, building aside from where I'm, you know, where I'm living. Right. Yeah. I was always opposed to coffee shop writing for the longest time, and then I noticed that if you have headphones on yeah. and you can still sort of see what's going on around you, it actually is invigorating. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever you're working on, even if you're not screenwriting, you're just working on something. Right. I was head, you have to have the that. headset. <laughs> yeah. Or the headphones. Those are important because otherwise people just come and start talking to you. Oh, um, that's true. Yeah, it's a good buffer. <laughs> it's a good social buffer. Yeah. yeah to have those on, but also libraries too. I mean, I'm just surprised that it actually it does feed you. And yeah. I was opposed to it for the longest time, and I, I can tell now why people need to get out of the house. Yeah. Because you gotta, you you need that little segue from being in your home to yeah, your brain going, okay, we're going to work now. And it's hard to, you know, if I'm just going from my bedroom to the living room, it's hard to just sit over here and say, okay, turn on my work brain. Because then I'm like, wait, what's on TV? And I'm gonna take a nap really quick. And yeah, right. Or or if I see an interesting article on like Flipboard or Pocket or something, and then I'm like, let me just read this, and yeah. then and, and I'm distracted. So yeah, once you get derailed, mm -hmm. then it's kind of right. You have to work to get the focus back again. Would you say you're very disciplined when you know that you need to get these four things done 
that you're pretty I'm, good? Yeah, I think my friends think I'm more disciplined than I am. Like, I, I think I could probably be more disciplined. I, I, I do work hard, though, but it's, it's um, I guess I am. I guess I am. But in my brain, I'm not disciplined enough. And my friends are like, you're so disciplined. I'm like, eh. I feel like I'd be doing more if I was more disciplined, but I'm, I'm usually always juggling a lot at the same time. So, um, but you always always want to make sure you don't have more on your plate than you can like really dedicate quality time to. So, I've definitely learned the art of saying no as I've gotten older. Because when you're young, you want to say yes to everything because you think, oh, this could be my, you know, these three opportunities could be the only thing I, things I ever get. So you're always like saying yes to everything. And as you get older, you start realizing like, you know, it's okay to say no to stuff if you're not passionate about it or if you don't think you'll have the time to to really do it and I've done that where I'm like this really isn't my thing and I don't think I'm the best writer for it so you know I know a lot of writers that will take you know jobs just to have a job and unless I think I, it's something that I could do justice to I'm not going to take it on as a as a job unless it's a challenge sometimes there have been things where people have brought me projects where I'm like this isn't my wheelhouse but it would be really fun to try to write it so then I'll do that but it's got to be something that really strikes a chord with me do you know any writers that write eight to ten hours a day? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. so do they usually? I mean, I'm assuming they stop for lunch or they do something. Yeah, to, yeah. To I mean, break. yeah. I know that I have a lot of writer friends that they they do, if they're not on staff, they're they're very much like they treat it like a nine to five job. So they'll you know get up in the morning, they'll do their thing, then they'll write till lunchtime. They'll take lunch, they'll write till five, and they'll stop writing for the day. Um, mm. And that's a, again, that's I think that's great if you're if you're working on one thing at a time, you, I think you have the luxury of doing that more. I think if you're trying to do two or three projects at the same time, then it's harder to to do that, but it, you can do it. You know, I, I certainly have friends that, that, that do it, you know. What are some of the most important questions you're asking yourself when you're developing a story idea? Um, I think who my audience is, you know, um, is the story interesting enough? Usually for my horror stuff, it's like, is there enough is there enough stuff in here to care about the characters? But am I also coming up with enough scares that we haven't seen before? Um, those are the kind of things that I I ask myself. Like it's interesting because I, I I love doing it and I've done it for so long that it's it's definitely it's not easy work at all. Like people because people don't understand like again especially when you're threading a script together and you know, dissecting it and making sure that everything kind of lines up and, and pieces together. Um, you want to put your best foot forward, but you also realize that a lot of times that once you sell the script and it's out of your hands, a lot of that stuff just goes out the window. Um, so that's why I'm, I'm not as harsh when I see a movie. I like I, I reserve judgment on the writer until I read the actual screenplay because you just never know what changes from page to screen. But for me, it's usually, especially because it's always horror films, it's like, you know, do I think this is also do I think this is going to strike a chord with people like you know Final Destination dealt with death which is kind of a universal fear so I try to think of concepts that will tap into something that's will reach a wide audience you know I'm not going to lie about that like I do try to you know you, you want to hit as many people as you can I think with your concept but that's what I love about horror, the horror genre I think themes are you know the fears that we have most people are universal fears um, that aren't you know regulated to like one region or one part of the world or or any you know I think we all kind of have the same fears deep down so that's the thing I think I love about horror is you can kind of tackle a whole bunch of different kind of stories and still have it play well around the world I like how you use the analogy of it's like knitting you know and that if you you know let's suppose you're knitting or crocheting something and then you just pull one little string here that it can really affect the whole, like you know, yeah. sweater or whatever. Right. And a lot of people don't realize that when they, especially when they give you notes, they'll they'll 
Like I, I know at one time I had a project where a director came in and the producers are like, and they literally, they're like, we think he's full of shit, but we're going to give him a shot directing because he directed a couple things before. But his pitch, he kind of came in and his, he had an opening scene that was, because the movie, the whole movie built around this plot twist about these characters not knowing each other. And his opening scene was basically, it was very clear these characters knew each other. And so, you know, my first meeting with him, I was like, well, you know, I was trying to be very diplomatic. I'm like, well, how do you propose that we, how do you propose that we do that opening scene so that we don't spoil the fact that they know each other? Because that's kind of the whole twist of the script. And it was one of those, well, you're the writer, you figure it out. And so it's like, okay, you're, that's like the, you know, I will spoil the end of Usual Suspects if you haven't seen the, (laughs) but that's like, that's like going, you know, pretend that, you know, Kevin Spacey didn't make it all up and Kaiser Sose is a real person. Um, but you're like, but the whole point of the movie is it's in, and then they are like, or, you know, the end of the sixth sense. It's like, well, pretend Bruce Willis is like a real person and not a guy, you know what I'm saying? So, you know, when they, when they come to do something like that, it gets, it's a little, they obviously don't understand. Like you're, you're taking the core of what makes this movie like the core mystery and you're giving it away at the beginning. So it's going to change the whole movie. And then they're just like, yeah, you'll figure it out. So it's, just shows a, a certain level of not understanding about you know how much thought you do need to actually put into a, a good screenplay. And then when you said something earlier about you know that even something that you write that you are precious about, at some point there's like a letting go process because you know that once it's sort of out of your hands, it could be changed. Yeah, yeah, and you have to you have to, and I think that's another you know kind of blessing of working at a studio is I got to see that there you know even though you know, again, New Line was very much about, you know, artists and, 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 you know, protecting their vision and things like that. There were a lot of times where, you know, we would get a script in that had like Jim Carrey attached to it. And there was another script that came in with nobody attached, but it was a great script. Well, they're going to go with the Jim Carrey script first, obviously. And so that's just part of the business. So there's so many decisions. It's just like with acting, like it's so much different when you sit in an audition room than when you're going into audition, because, you know, obviously the people in the room, they don't know how much time that you've auditioned and how much, you know, you've talked to, you've auditioned for your friends and you've taped it and you've got to, you know, you've had acting coaches like coach you down line delivery and you're sitting in the, on the other side of the table when actors come in and they leave and it's like, you know, that was the best actor, but, you know, his hair color is the same as the other two guys that we have. And, you know, and it's like, well, we could dye his hair. And then it's like, yeah, yeah. But then, you know, and then some of the smallest things will like be the deciding factor and it has nothing to do with the person's talent um so you have to learn to detach at a certain point otherwise you just you know because the the business no matter what part of the business you work in you're going to get more no's and yeses like it's 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 to get somebody else to make your movie it's easy to make your own movie now because you have the you can make a movie on your iphone that looks professional it's high definition now um but you know it's almost impossible if you think about the odds of getting someone else to put up money to make your movie so getting a movie made in and of itself is a miracle it really is so to think about that and then how hard it is to get cast for something, you know, for every role that, you know, when we put out a casting thing for every role, we'll get like 500, you know, people that are submitted for like one role. And then you have to narrow those all down to people that come across good on tape to the people that you actually call into the, to the rooms. And then you whittle those people down and you bring them in for chemistry reads. And there have been so many times where it's like we have two great actors that we love for a part. But when you get them together, they just had no chemistry whatsoever. And then the, these two actors, you know, that we didn't think were as great as the ones before come in and have great chemistry. And you're like, you know, it makes you rethink 
the whole thing. So, um, so yeah, I, that was a long answer about letting go. But you have to kind of let that that has that filters over into any any probably any part of your life, you know, because we all, no matter what we do for a profession, like we put our, you know, we kind of identify ourselves by that. So we identify our our well our well our value by how well we do in it. So. You know, if you no matter what you do, whether it's you know you're a doctor, or a lawyer, or whatever, if you're not succeeding, then there's a part of you that feels like you're a failure, and you have to realize like so much stuff is out of your control. All you can do is your best. Like that's why I like writing because even you know acting is even worse because you don't have any say over auditioning. Like you you don't know if you're going to get an audition, but at least with writing, I can write. Like nobody can stop you, you know, from physically writing all the time. So like that's one thing I have control over. Um, so you can only have, you can only worry about the stuff you have control over and do your best, but there are so many things outside of your control that have nothing to do with your talent. And, and oftentimes we do think it, you know, if we don't get a part or if we don't get a writing assignment or if our movie doesn't get greenlit, we're like, oh, it's because we suck or writing sucks or, you know, and you know what I'm saying? Like, and that's, that's just a common feeling I think we have as human beings about stuff. If we don't succeed at something, we, we think it's a personal failure you know, for us as a human being, you know, like we're failing when it's really not that at all. It's just, there's so many other things that we, we can not, we don't, have no idea that factor into that, you know, final decision about what gets going or what movie gets made or who gets cast. Did you always think like that? I mean, cause that, that's a pretty mature way of looking at it. And I don't know, does that just come with having been rejected or having seen the industry from the time when you were 19 working at New Line? I think it was a little bit, I think it was seeing the industry from when, I think it was partly seeing the industry from when I was 19. I think part of it was how I was was raised too. I mean, my mom was very, you know, very much, in, you know, she, a single mother raised me and my sister, but she was very much about us getting education. I mean, we were biracial. We grew up in a really not um, accepting part of, of America when we were, I mean, well, all of America wasn't very accepting when we were first born. Um, so, you know, we were and you know, we were raised in the Baha'i faith, which is very much about like unity of the whole world and equality of men and women and racism, equality of religion. And so I've definitely, mom has always, and you know, just that upbringing has always taught me to think about the bigger picture, you know, like I, you know, I feel, and it's, it's not, doesn't make me any smarter or any better or wiser than anybody. It's just that, you know, I grew up thinking about a world community as opposed, as opposed to like just, you know, my town and, you know, my country. It's like, I, you know, of course I love my country, but I realized that our country was part of a big world. And it seems like a lot of people didn't quite start realizing that until the internet came along and they started going, oh, wow, there's a, a whole world out there of other people that we're connected to. Um, so I've always tried to, and it's, it's, it's been to my benefit and to my detriment. Like I always try to see like all sides of an issue. I try to you know, I have friends from every background on, on the planet, you know, some people that are that are hardcore like atheists and people that are hardcore religious and people that are right wing and left wing and, you know, people that, you know, and because I, because I, the one thing that my mom always taught us growing up is, and again, it's, you know, born, being born in 69, you know, that was when the last school was, there was, a, the last school was desegregated in 69. So, you know, people, people tend to kind of forget how we haven't had as much time from a lot of the ugliness that we think we'd like to think that we do. And so I got to see a lot of that firsthand growing up, but my mom was always like, don't judge these people by what they're doing now because they're only treating you how they were taught to treat you. This isn't defining who they are. And so you have to like, 
you know, pray for them and wish them well and not do that. And so I try, I try to take that approach with everything. And, and sometimes myself, and I fail miserably at it a lot of times too. But I think that that taught me at a young age just to set, not to separate, but just to kind of see a bigger picture kind of point of view. Because I, I knew, you know, I wasn't, things weren't always going to be horrible. Like, you know, when, when I was like facing racism growing up. And then, you know, on top of that, then I came out being gay. And then it was like, well, we can't call him this word, but now we can call him this other word now. And then, you know, so it's just, it's, so you see people just kind of replacing, you know, prejudices um, with other prejudices. And it all comes from places of like fear and, you know, and, and ignorance. I don't mean that in an uneducated way, but just, you know, when people don't, aren't exposed to something like I, sure. I did a, t- a podcast the other day and the topic was, but you're not like, you're not like the rest of them. And that's what I heard a lot of times growing up where people that were racist were like, oh, but you're not like the rest of those black people or you're not like the rest of those gay people. Um, and they would just say all these horrible like stereotypes about them. So it's, it's interesting when you see the world kind of from that perspective is, is a little bit of an outsider who is trying to understand like all sides of something. Cause you realize a solution lies in the middle somewhere. Um, and not screaming at this side or this side and that there really aren't two sides. It's just, you know, it makes us feel better if we're like fighting against somebody as, as opposed to trying to like look for a solution. Um, so that kind of thinking has just been, that was inbred in me, or not inbred in me, but you know what I'm saying? Like that sure. was kind of instilled, instilled yeah, thank absolutely. you. That's what I was looking yeah. for. I'm a writer. Um, but, but it's emotional, a, I'm sure, to bring that up. Yeah. I mean, yeah, but that was instilled in me from yeah. a, a, a young age. Mom always taught me that the world is bigger than me and bigger than what was ex- what was in my immediate uh, vicinity. So, like, you know, even if I was going through a rough time and, you know, growing up in, like, you know, pre-middle school and things like that, she's like, you know, there's a world beyond that that you're going to get to at some point. And, you know, and I've just, you know, so that's always taught me just not to internalize stuff as much but the the bad side is that i'm is that now i'm I, I my life i am very much a people pleaser where i want to make everybody happy and i want and i want everybody to get along because it really is such a simple it's so it just is, is simple sometimes just sitting down and listening listening to somebody instead of talking and i talk a lot because i'm a writer so i'm you know i always joke like we don't interact that much with people because we're always in front of in front of our laptops so it's hard to shut us up when you get us out there but <laughs> but when you actually you know that's why i'm able to have friends with so many different beliefs because I actually sit down and we don't agree on everything but it's so funny when you talk to people there's there's automatic defenses that they go to when you talk about certain topics and things and so I, I know what those are because I see them people just fall into those defenses all the time so then I always try to figure out how to talk around those and how to you know what I'm saying not to it's like when you have a sibling I love my sister to death but she knows how to push my buttons so it's like when she pushes a button I can either react in a different way or I can react the way that I've reacted for my whole life and say the same thing back to her that I always say that I know is going to start a big fight. You know what I'm saying? So that's kind of how I view life as too, is like, you know, if you're, when you're going through life, it's like dealing with people, dealing with situations. It's like, you can, it's, it's easy to get caught up in the emotion of that moment and react. And, um, I feel like I'm like going off tangent here now, but <laughs> do you put a lot of that in your scripts? I mean, especially being in, in a town where there is such a, uh, uh, maybe a look of like this is the right way this is not the right way and feeling like that outsider because I think that shapes a lot of artists in a very intense way you think you yeah. put a lot of that in your script um I don't I I don't put a lot I think uh, I think I, tr- I try to be much I think I try to just write stuff and then have the inclusivity like speak for itself 
even a lot of that gets taken out of my scripts. Like I, I'll write scripts that have like people from different, you know, racial backgrounds or, you know, most of my scripts except for Final Station, you know, are, are very, you know, strong women um, at the center of it. Um, like I haven't written, none of my scripts have had nudity in them. Um, just because I don't think I need it. Now sequels have, you know, like, but for me it's like, I don't think I don't think I need it unless it's, you know, I did, there was a butt shot in my last movie, but it was it was tastefully done. Oh good. Um, <laughs> and it was from afar and it was just somebody walking out of the bathroom. Oh good. Okay. But, but, you know, the, so I try to like, it, it's more like, I, I don't, cause I never want to, cause I write horror movies. I mean, I, mean, I kill people on screen. So it's like, I, I, you know, I can't really, you don't want to get too preachy with messages, you know, like in Final Destination, I mean, you could say, yes, it's, you know, you never know how long you have to live, so enjoy life while you can. But, but on top of that, I know that I can write like, you know, a really, you know, hopefully complex, like female character, or I can write a gay character who's not a stereotype, or I can, you know, have a Muslim character in there. And a lot of times, again, these characters get taken out after I've sold a script. So I've had to learn to kind of let that go. And I'm, you know, moving more into directing and producing now so that I can kind of put that stuff back in there because for me it's just about showing people as people and I think that's how you break down walls and it's it's sometimes it's easier it's kind of a joke that does tie into the topic but it's like you know I've been sober for like 11 years now and and I notice that every time all my friends every time somebody gets sober like all their scripts always then have somebody who's either an alcoholic or just got sober in their scripts like it and I you know it's just because all of a sudden you feel like when you you don't realize how prevalent alcoholism is even though you're not supposed to ever diagnose anybody else as being alcoholic it has to be self-diagnosed but you just never realize how prevalent alcohol is you know until you get sober and then it's like you go to a party that's sponsored by sky vodka and then you're like can i just get a coke and they're like seven dollars i'm like but you're giving away vodka cranberries for free yeah but that's our sponsor i'm sober i don't care seven dollars so you don't realize how much alcohol is like pushed on you until you don't drink anymore so when something like that catastrophic happens in your life when like when you quit something you know like that then I think a lot of times you'll find writers like we'll put that in our in our stuff or we'll bring it up and you know um, but I think the outsider thing in general is what is a kind of a common theme you'll find amongst horror writers in general is I think that you know a lot of them were like weren't the super popular kids you know and there's some really I mean and there and there are some writers that horror writers I know that were really popular, you know, and were prom king and queen. So, but a lot of them weren't, you know, a lot of them were like the kind of comic geeks and the people that like to, you know, just go off and do geeky things and not, right. not, the, not play the sports and try to be popular kind of people. So, um, it's a pretty eclectic mix, but, but yeah, I think you just, everybody does their, does their thing. I have some female horror writers who, um, some of the stuff that I read of theirs, I'm like, wow, this is actually has more nudity and leering at women than if a straight guy wrote this like wait a minute you said this is a feminist horror movie right i don't know um but i guess maybe you're you know like i can't speak for but i know writers that will try to make sure that they put a message you know like in their movies or something that's really important to them and and for me it's more like just trying to like i have a movie at Lionsgate right now that's got pretty much like a 95 percent african-american latino cast and it's not about it's just a horror movie. it's a slasher movie and i just tell people it's just like if you're watching Scream where it's like a bunch of pretty white kids and there's like, well, not even the first one. They didn't have any black people in the first one. But, you know, one of the later Screams um, where you're watching a bunch of pretty white kids and they have like the one black friend. That's, our movie's like you're just focusing on all the pretty black and Latino kids and they have a couple of white friends. So it's it's not that you're making a movie that's about race. It's just you're casting a movie that's just focusing on a different group of friends than most of the horror films do. So I think that that, 
that type of movie, in my humble opinion, will actually reach a wider market because again, you know, white audiences just want to go see a good horror movie. You know, like they don't care what color they, the characters are. Um, and then people of color who are horribly underrepresented in horror films are, are a huge audience for horror films. Um, we've just done all the test, even at New Line, we did test marketing back in, you know, the 90s. And it was like in all the major cities, it was like 50%, you know, of the horror audiences in all the major cities were African-American, Latino. And it's such a horribly underserved market that they'll go to see the movie numerous times because they've never seen themselves represented on screen as just people. Um, and regular horror fans, I'm not regular, that's awful. Um, I'm trying to be so PC right now. <laughs> Screw that, I'm no snowflake. Um, you know, but, you know, horror fan, white horror fans, as mm-hmm. long as it's a good slasher movie, they're gonna go see it a couple times too. Um, so that's gonna be a really good kind of social experiment. And it's taken me like 20, you know, I've been trying since, I tried to have a you know black lead in one of the Final Destination movies and it just it's never happened. And, um, you know, so it's taken me like, yeah, it's taken me 20 some years to like finally get a movie going, you know. So it's, it is, it's funny when we, when we talk about, you know, we're racist and it is, is in America and it's like, oh, we're, you know, we voted for Obama, so we're post-racial now and everything's hunky-dory. And it's like, yeah, it's not, you know, like, cause, cause you know, Hollywood's pretty friggin' liberal, but they, they know what sells and what won't sell. And they know how people like pigeonhole kind of movies. And sometimes they do underestimate, definitely they underestimate people's intelligence in a way or, or, um, what they'll go see, but there, there's just also the hard reality that you have to prove to them, like a movie like Girl Trip that came out with Jada Pinkett and Queen Latifah, and you know makes thirty million dollars opening weekend, and they're like, what? You know, and Wonder Woman comes out directed by a woman and about a woman superhero. What? They act so surprised, and it's like nobody wants to take a chance on something that's different. Um, so you have to, sh- you have to find that person that will or that studio that will, and then once you do. I guarantee you once this movie comes out, there's going to be a whole bunch of, you know, slasher horror films that are like, you know, heavily like diverse cast. So, um, so again, it's kind of like a quiet fight. You know, I haven't been running around like, you know, yelling after every final lesson he comes out going, I wanted a black character to be the lead and they wouldn't do like, I, you know, that's not going to do me any good. That's just going to upset people and make people think that I'm like crying race. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's not going to be productive. So you just kind of have to put your, Put your best foot forward and put your money where your mouth is and try to, till you find the people that like kind of get behind the movie like the one that we're doing now. So did you try to add a non-white uh, character to any of the Final Destination? Yeah. And, and what would happen? Uh, they would just cast a white person. So they, you would write it into the script yeah. as to who this character was yeah. and then when you saw the final product, yeah, that person yeah. wasn't there, okay. Yeah, and it, you know, it, it was, fr- it, it, and the, 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 re- the reality is, is Internationally, movies, if, if the lead is a person of color, they don't sell as, as, as well internationally. And, you know, I get, except for like, you know, like a Halle Berry or a Denzel Washington, or there's, you know, there's, a, there's, there's like maybe five names that will, in certain genres, will sell internationally. But, you know, a movie like Get Out comes out and it makes 100 million here and it only costs like 5 million to make. It's like, who cares what it makes internationally? Like, you're going to make that money here. So there, there is a little bit of, business reasoning behind it but a lot of it's like until you you try to break the mold you never know what the mold you know you never know until you try to break the mold and um you know that's why i think this last year with get out and wonder woman were so important is because even though i i even on on my facebook before it came out i'm like i'll bet my life that wonder woman's gonna be one of the top selling you know superhero films of all time and it's just because people 
don't they underestimate how powerful of an impact Linda Carter had as Wonder Woman. So pretty much everybody, you know, in their 40s, you know, 50, you know, and above and, you know, late 30s, anybody who kind of grew up on seeing Linda Carter as Wonder Woman loved that character. And she's been around forever. And then you got younger people meeting her in the Justice League. So I knew the movie was going to do like huge business, but nobody, you know, it's like when people say, oh, if a, if an openly gay actor were to play a, you know, like James Bond, nobody would believe it. And I'm like, why don't we try it first? You know, like, cause I, I, I think people that go watch movies like know that Robert England's not a, you know, child molesting serial killer that wears, <laughs> you know, I'm sure, I'm sure that they know he's not like that in real life. Um, so I don't know. It's, it's, just, it's funny. So you just try to make whatever changes you can with your art. And a lot of times it just, it doesn't even happen. And again, I'm, I work in the horror genre. So for, you know, again, it's, it's even more, it's even harder to try to like, you know, you don't want to, you can't get too high minded in, you know, in a horror film. You can, you know, again, you can try to, again, make strong female characters, you know, make interesting dynamics between, between everybody, um, you know, show diversities of just people of, of any like religion or background. And, you know, you can try to put all that in your movie, but a lot of times that, that ends up getting out of your hands, um, you know, once you sell the script. So you just kind of, again, that's when you learn to kind of let go and, you know, be grateful that you had a movie made, you know. Can you think of an example where you wrote yourself into a corner and then how you wrote yourself out? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah pretty easy. Uh, Tamra was a movie I wrote myself into a corner because it was, um, you know, like that's a tough thing in horror films is you create your, your villain and you make them really strong and it's like you have to come up with a way to stop them um, and you don't want to do something super generic, but you know, Tamara was kind of my homage to Carrie um, about a girl who's picked on and bullied and these kids pull a prank on her and they accidentally kill her. And she's, you know, in the script, she's supposed to be like really frumpy and unattractive. And then they bury her in the woods and the next Monday she comes into school and she's really smoking hot and she knows all their secrets and their sins and she uses that to turn against them. Um, but I made her, you know, she was really powerful. And so I'm like, you know, how, if I stop her, it's either gonna have, they're gonna have to find a spell since she's in the witchcraft. They're gonna have to find a spell to stop her, which is kind of, you know, it's just we've seen that a hundred times. Like, how am I gonna? And I made her so strong that you can't kill her because she came back from the dead. So what? You know, what do I do? And so I had to. Uh, if you haven't seen Tamara, spoiler. <laughs> um, but no, but so I basically had to. You know, I tied her fate to the teacher that she was in love with. So he ended up sacrificing. You know, doing the heroic sacrifice and like you know grabs Tamara and jumps off a building with her and, you know, sacrifices himself to stop her. So, you know, heroic sacrifice is always a good way in a horror film to, to get yourself out of a corner because you, that's the thing when you create a monster is you have to figure out a way to kill it. And then it's like, you don't want it to be something overly complicated, um, but you don't want it to be something as simple as, a, oh, the spell will just kill her. Um, so yeah, that I definitely wrote myself into a corner on, with that movie. And I was like, well, I'll, I'll just, yeah, I'll have the teacher, you know, sacrifice his life to, to stop her. And then when you got notes, let's say the first few times around showing them, what were, what were the notes? What were the feedback about Tamara? Like, was she too much this, not enough this? Tamara was actually, Tamara was probably the easiest, um, that, that was probably the easiest project to, as far as, you know, we found a studio that, that wanted to do it and they did it. Like it was, um, it was pretty easy, easy sell. Cause I wrote that one cause I wanted to have fun with the movie. Cause I already been like, bring us something like Final Destination, bring us something and that, you know, that's 
yeah, and then you bring in something, oh, that's too much like Final Destination. And it's like, <laughs> ah, stop. I, so finally I just wanted to write something fun. And like in my, in my head, and you know, it was just like a fun, I wanted to write like a fun, like quotable, like campy, sexy, you know, horror movie. I mean, it turned out really well. I did joke because we, because of the budget, you know, we had, we had, um, we had a certain budget and then magically half that budget like disappeared um, before when we started shooting. Um, so the movie turned out not, you know, we didn't have the money that we went in the movie having. So I always kind of joke, it's kind of like the PG 13, you know, ABC family version of an R rated horror film that I wrote. So when you watch it, you can definitely see like a lot of places where it's like the story got kind of chopped out a little bit and then stuff didn't go like, wow, they could have really pushed the envelope here and they played it really safe. And that was, that was all because of like, you know, budget stuff or things like that. So that was another one where like, I actually wrote a book with a friend of mine, um, uh, JD Matthews, and we put it out just based on the screenplay so that people could see like what the original story was like. Cause it, the only thing we had to change on that, um, cause there was some pretty intense stuff in there, but nobody ever said, take it out. But, and that's, what's always funny. Cause a lot of times it's the studio that wants you to take out stuff and play it safe. And um, the couple of movies where that's happened to me, it hasn't been the studio that's done it. It's been like either a producer like kind of running off with some money, or, <laughs> um, or, yeah, or or somebody on the on the movie set like, oh no, this is yeah, let's tone this down or let's do this. So I've had the opposite of, of what a lot of people have, where it's like the studio wants to play it safe. Like I had a couple of movies where I'm like, I can't believe they're letting me get away with this. And then you get on set, and one of the actors is like, oh, I don't want to do this. And then they're like, okay. And I'm like, damn it. It's like, usually the studio stops me, not an actor. So it's very, again, it's very, it's a very interesting business that that we're in. So having Final Destination and, and the various ones that you were a part of under your belt, do you think that um, sometimes it's difficult because they pigeonhole you with that and you want to do something in a little bit of a different realm? Or is it nice because you're known for that so then they have confidence? I mean, for me, it's nice. I mean, just because I've, I'm a horror fan and I'll probably, you know, I've, I've, you know, I have a science fiction kind of horror overtones to it, but a big science fiction project right now we're doing, but, you know, I might branch out a little bit, but I'm very happy writing horror. So, um, I've just, yeah, I love the genre. So, and I used to, in part of it's like also from just growing up, you would read in Fangoria magazine, which is like the Bible for, for horror people. But, you know, you'd read directors, they would do a horror film. They're like, well, it's not really a horror film. It's more of a supernatural thriller. Um, and they would try to say everything but say it's a horror film and then they would do a horror film because they know they're going to probably make a profit and then they would quit making horror and go off and do other stuff. So a lot of even directors would be like, well, this is really a stepping stone to do what I want to do. And so growing up, you get really like, ah, screw you, you know, this is a great genre. So, um, you know, and it is. And so, yeah, this is something I am very, you know, embrace wholly. I love going to horror conventions and, mm-hmm. and yeah, it's just a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. It's, it's, a, great, it's a great fan base and you know, a lot of the, you know, the people that I work with now that are my peers were all horror fans like me. We grew up loving the same stuff and watching the same stuff. So um, it's just a really fun community to be a part of. Jeffrey, will you write on days when you don't feel inspired? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I always joke my inspiration is I had to pay rent and I have to, (laughs) yeah, I have bills to pay. So that's, yeah, you, yeah, you, I mean, there are, but there are times where I will just, I will give myself a break because I'm like, okay, I've been working, you know, I've been writing every day for 10 days and if I want to take a day off, it's okay. Like, so that's, that's usually what happens with me. It's like, I don't, it's, yeah, I learned to not do 
I because I read a great quote somewhere, and I and I somebody can Google it and find out who said it. But it, they were talking about how you know people you you don't wait for your muse to calm you. Like you grab the muse and you strap it down to the chair and you choke it until it you know because yeah you will writers will find any excuse to not write you know will you know it's like working out or doing anything that's that you want to do but you're a little like fear, fearful that you're not going to reach out for it you're going to find any excuse to put off writing so um you have to learn like not to you know you can't say that you're waiting for inspiration because you can inspire yourself if you start writing even if you write a couple pages a day even if it's crap you just train your brain to write so it's you know it's a chemical thing that you you do if you make yourself write every day at a certain time i don't do this because i again roll out of bed and we'll start writing pretty early but you know i during the earlier times there were you know when i was kind of like oh i i don't feel inspired i would just do that i would just get up and be like all right i'm going to score write two pages even if it's like awful stuff and then you you do actually get your brain wired to where you'll that those two hours will start coming and your brain will start percolating before before noon hits and you'll start writing and you know so you it's, you have to kind of train yourself um, to do it, but I understand like I understand that oh I don't feel inspired today or whatever. But there comes a point where you have to make sure you're not just doing that because you're afraid of writing. Because you you know I was talking to a friend of mine recently and you know she was complaining about how she's like she's written this you know humongous outline this humongous treatment for it. And she just hasn't started the script. And I said well because you know when you finish a script you have to give it off and it's like you're one step closer to like handing it over to people. So you're like st- stuck in this this area, and a lot of times that's why we're procrastinating, because we know once we start writing and we finish that script, we have to give it to somebody, you know, and that's when the judgment comes. <laughs> um, so I think that that's a lot of times the reasons that you know that's where that not feeling inspired is just like I think that's just kind of not wanting to write really. Also, too, because you're close to your characters, and I'm not sure if this is the same for horror genre, but that you, you're you losing your friends in some sense, because that's who you've been spending time with. Right. So handing it off is like almost ending a relationship. Yeah. No, It's it, it, there is a weird place you get when you write something and you love it, and you're, yeah, and, and you want to hand it off, and you want people that re- to read it to just love it as much as you do, and if they don't immediately, then you're like, you know, yeah, there's like a it's like you're saying goodbye you're ending something but then then it's like sending him off and then having other people like and go why were you in a relation with that thing that's a <laughs> hideous choice for a partner what were you thinking um so you don't want people to like not like your stuff too when you hand it off so it's um you it, it's it's like when you audition when you go up and audition in front of people that you don't know i mean you're you're putting yourself up there and basically even if you're being a character the, the you still feel like you're like all right love me and want me for this part and if you say no then you're rejecting me so that's you know that's that's just something you it's it's really hard to like no matter how successful you get or how long you've been around it's hard to let that go um you know even now when i if i get a pass on a script it'll it still stings a little bit even if it's a place that i know it's not right for you know would you say screenwriting is hard because i'm sure a lot of people could look at your story they could look at your credits and you make it look easy in terms of wow, that's a really cool story. Here you were 14 and you send this, you know, script idea off and although it's rejected and you don't know what the notes are, you still have this relationship that really shaped you in a lot of ways and I think it's a really cool story and not a lot of people probably have that opportunity. But is it is it hard? Because it, it looks easy. Yeah. From the outsider's view. Yeah. It's, it's, it's hard. Um... It's it's always interesting because if I, sometimes if I if I have a story that I love and I've outlined it 
then it's just fun. But when you're, again, when you're definitely trying to do a lot of things and get a lot of things like, cause you know, again, I'm at the point in my career now where I want to, you know, just branch out and tell, you know, still horror stories, but like do something like the Lionsgate project, which is, is, you know, I think going to, it's just a really important kind of thing that you've, you know, where you had to fight for it. Um, it is hard cause you want to, you, you, you want to write something that's going to strike a chord to people, but you want to write something that's successful. You want to write something that's going to spawn a franchise. And, and I've had, you know, for better or for worse, for some of my films, they've done really well. And other ones have, that were supposed to turn out well, didn't quite turn out the way they're supposed to and went, you know, direct a video or didn't get a good release. And, you know, there's, so there's, again, there's, it's, you definitely have to stay in gratitude a lot of times and you have to find the joy in it all you know and the joy in writing and I still love writing especially when I'm you know if they're if I'm writing something else and I get something just inspires me to like you know like a, I hate to say a kill scene but you know like a kill I'm like oh my god I've never like I just thought of a, a, a great scene for a movie that you know I was so excited and I called the producer about and he's like was in love with it and so that's the fun stuff you know it's like trying to come up with new new things but you know it is hard to sit down in front of a computer every day and you know writing a hundred page script you know that's it is it is work and it's and it's not it's not easy you know because you're you're trying to write something that is going to be creatively satisfying you're trying to write something that you think will sell because this is your livelihood um so you're trying to juggle both of those things but not get too far down the road that you're not focused on the finishing the actual script you know so you've got to keep all those other things out of your or try to keep them out of your head about is this going to sell is this going to make money are people going to like this you have to try not to like focus too much on that and, and just get the script done. But um, that can be hard in and of itself. You know, it's not future tripping about, you know, what's going to happen with the script once you're done with it. So it's, um, it's fun, but it's not easy. It's not easy. I mean, there are harder, you know, it's always, it's like with actors, you know, because acting's not easy. To be a good actor is not easy. But, you know, you know, it's not like we're going into, you know, putting out fires and, you know, putting our lives in danger and, you know, doing like, physically hard labor it's just mental it's just mental exhaustion you know it's a lot of a lot of mental work did the screenwriting career that you envisioned look the same in terms of the day-to-day because you know how people have a romantic notion about what something is oh yeah see it no not at all not at all yeah (laughs) yeah like because you don't you don't really envision with the writing like i you don't realize how long it takes to write a script first of all and then you know like i you know, I had a friend once who was like, oh, yeah, I just took a took a weekend trip to Hawaii and wrote my script on the beach with some Mai Tais. And I'm like, oh, that's what writing is. You just go off for a weekend and you write a script. And yeah, no, the day-to-day grind of getting, you know, two or three or four or five pages a day done is like, it's a, it's a grind. And then you've also got life that you're living and you also have to try to get out and have a life because if you don't have a life, you know, like I'm kind of joking because we are, you know, writers are so very solitary, but you know, I do go out to the movies and I do go out to dinner and I do go out and do stuff with my friends because otherwise, if you sit at home all the time, you're not experiencing life. And so then you can't bring anything else to your scripts than what you've already experienced. So you're just kind of regurgitating the same experiences that you've had. So you've got to kind of make sure your cup is like flowing over with other things besides just work. But you have to take time out to do that too. So in terms of what most people would envision, like, you know, you're at the keyboard and you've got a, well, no, not a drink, but, you know, some people, in, you know, they think that that's part of it with the cigarette and just like this tortured oh, existence. Oh, yeah. And, and you're pounding out all, and then, then this thing is beautiful in it. 
but it sounds like it's it's there's more of a science to it and it's not just there's a science but for some people again everybody has a different method which is is very interesting it's like it's like with acting like you have your method actors who have to be like you know they have to become the character and they have to you know you have your other actors who when the camera when the director says you know rolling you know then they just they they go and then cut then they drop back into who they are and I think there are writers that are the same way too. Like, you know, yeah, there's a stereotype. Like, that's why I quit drinking. It's like I was becoming that stereotype. I was sitting here drinking at home and, you know, thinking I'm writing some brilliant stuff. And yeah, the first couple pages were great. And then the rest of it's like, what the hell was I writing? Um, so, you know, you think, you do think that that's kind of, I do have some friends that, that do torture themselves without the drink or anything. They just, you know, it's like they obsess about every single line of dialogue. And it's like, you're never going to finish your script if you're like that. But again, that's how they, are so everybody's got a whole different process and so that's why i always tell people don't don't judge yourself harshly if your process isn't the same as somebody else's you know because it really is your end result that matters it's like getting that script finished so you do obviously have to follow certain you know structural rules and certain you know your dialogue needs to be good your you know it has to be an engaging story but sometimes it takes people a lot longer you know i've known friends that where it's taken them 10 years to write a script you know, and it's not yeah. like they're working every day, eight hours a day on it, but you know. 10 years. Yeah, right? I, have, I had a couple of friends that have like, yeah, I've been working on this for 10 years and, and it's great. Some of their stuff's great. And I've read some scripts where people have written a script in a week and it's great, um, not consistently, but you know, <laughs> but it's, everybody's got a different thing. And I think that's what's always interesting too, is we always have our ideas in our head what everybody's life is like. And it's like, you know, even what you think an actor's life is like, like, it, their lives, you know, the celebrities' lives. I mean, they're, you know, they're like trudging into Starbucks with their dog and their kids crying and have to go change their kids' diaper and, you know, just like everybody else is, you know, like, you know, so you, you definitely, the uh, the glamour of Hollywood that they used to project and was so important back in the days of, you know, the olden days with the, with the Hollywood stars, you know, which when it was like the stars ran everything and they had to keep up these perfect images. Like we've lost all of that now with like the internet and, access to everybody's private lives and you know we see people now on the street you know people are taking pictures of people and it's like oh wait a minute they're just like uh you know like that's even a i think people or something has a whole thing like celebrities they're just like us and it shows pictures of them like walking a dog and before that you thought these they were these magical creatures and you know you thought these writers were these like tortured you know sitting in a dark room like with you know just pounding away at a keyboard and sip you know sipping from their bottle of whiskey and you know cursing the heavens and yeah it's 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 different for everybody. It's different for everybody. But they're all at Starbucks. I mean, they definitely... Coffee shops are full of star writers in, in California. That's definitely a cliche that you can't... That's one cliche that's true. It's like you can go every coffee shop, there's somebody's work... There's five people working on a screenplay at any coffee shop that you walk into. So it's pretty funny. How much time do you spend outlining a story? I know you had talked about a friend that had this like really long outline. And, yeah. And do, do you keep it to one page, or how do you do it? Um, I usually do like maybe two or three pages. Like I'll do like a super rough outline and then I'll just flush out a little bit more um, and then try to write the script after that. Because I, I find that most of the the fun stuff comes when I'm writing. So I definitely try to have everything planned out as far as like this is what's going to happen in the story and these are the characters that are going to make it to the end. And, you know, here's when this person, you know, I try to plot all that stuff out. But sometimes I leave stuff open because it's when you're writing and all of a sudden like a lot of times you'll get inspired by some fun stuff. How do you get better at writing? Was it through the notes that you got when you think about, let's say, you know, being 16 and, and writing something versus now? What do you think was the main thing to really 
get you better at it to to really improve your craft? Um, I think it was just, I think it was reading scripts and also that, which, you know, you learn to turn it to a positive is, is that insecure feeling that you have that, you know, and I know I hear people talk about this all the time, like actors or whatever, they're always like, the way they always word it is like they're afraid that someday somebody's going to realize that they were a fraud and they're not really that good, you know, as an actor, writer. And I think people that get better and better are people that have that thing in them where they're worried, you know, that they're, that they're not good enough yet, so they strive harder. So that's, for me, it's like, I think if I ever get to the point where I'm like, oh, I've, this, is, this is the best horror script that's ever going to ever be done, and so I've written it and I can just quit now then I'm screwed. Because I, I, again, I, I meet people like that all the time where they're like, trust me, this is going to be the best movie you'll ever read. You know, and it's like, it's not going to be the best movie ever. You know, don't say that. <laughs> like, if you guys get me, it's... So I think that, that that drive to constantly get better and top yourself as far as like the last thing that you did. Like, you know, like, you know, Final Destination, I'm very proud of that because it was kind of a... Because it was, it was a, you know, it was the first time that death had actually been like the killer in a film. So, you know, we, it was, you know, it was kind of a benchmark kind of film. Like I'm just trying to be nice about it, but it was. It made a, you know, it has a definitely has a bookmark in in horror history. So, that's enough of something to make me happy. But I want to, you know, with the Lionsgate project, I want that to be another bookmark as far as that was the first, you know, studio released film with a, you know, diverse cast. Um, and, you know, it's, it's my first slasher film, too, so I'm getting back into the slasher, or not back in, but I'm, you know, hopefully we'll kind of kick the new, new wave of the slashers off. Um, so now I actually, now I forgot the point. I, what was the <laughs> Oh, in terms of getting better, so it sounds oh, like... Oh, getting better, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, it's, it's it, you know, I don't want to, I always joke I don't want to milk Final Destination. To, yeah, I don't, I don't want that to be in my gravestone, like, he wrote Final Destination, and that's, like, you know, my only thing. Like, so I want to... I want more. I want a couple more franchises <laughs> before I die, so I know to do that I have to keep writing, and I know that I have to write good stuff, and you know, hopefully something will stick. You know. How many pilots or TV series have you written? Pilots, I have five pilots. Um, we're out with two of them right now. Um, two of them didn't get didn't get picked up, but I mean, there's always a shot. Um, and then one I had option for a while, and then got it, it came back to me once the company kind of changed their mandate. So, so yeah, I've written five five pilots, and um, that's fun. I mean, t- TV. The great thing about TV is, you know, they treat the the writers are kind of like the top of the food chain in TV, um, which again is 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 how it should be just in general. Because again, unless somebody actually writes something, then everybody else, whether it's a director, or actors all the crew, like they they don't have a job unless there's something written like so you know having a theater background like you know the play was always so important to us like even the director was always like you know it's about the written word and then you move to Hollywood and it's like writers are below anybody <laughs> like the guys that clean the toilets out you know it's just I'm exaggerating a tiny bit but it really is like you know directors actors crafty you know gaffers and then the writers like down here somewhere um, because you know Hollywood. There's definitely again, it's that perception of what Hollywood's about, and you know there there came the time when the auteur filmmakers started wanting to have their names over everything. So it was like a film by Alfred Hitchcock. So it's also like, oh, it's all it's Alfred Hitchcock's movie. The writer, you know, doesn't matter about them. And then it was, you know, we have this cult of celebrity too, where it's like we, you know, we idolize celebrities. So then it's like directors and the celebrities kind of became the focal point of everything, and the writers kind of got a lot, very lost in the shuffle. And then 
But when you get in TV, because you have to crank out the work and they realize that it's the writers that are actually cranking out the work and then you know the directors are hired on and the cast is hired on um but the whoever creates the show is usually also an executive producer on it has like creative control so that you that's why you see a lot of people moving again into television as well um is because it's you know it, they just treat writers better it's just you know the bottom line and they there's a just a level of respect and it's not even about ego like you want to be like you know, worshipped. It's just, you know, sometimes it really literally is about, you know, just respect. Like I I had a friend of mine I was talking to today and they had a, they had a cast and crew screening of the movie he wrote and didn't invite him. Oh, no. Invited everybody else. Oh. Everybody else. And, you know, and that's just kind of typical, you know, mm-hmm. that's just typical of Hollywood. And, you know, it stings when you, because again, yeah. it's so hard to get a movie made and then you write something and because of, Aww. you know, politics or whatever, it's like they just don't invite the writer and it's like, so, you know, it's, you know, that's not the only reason to get into TV. There's also something really gratifying about writing something and it comes out like a month later and you can watch it. Whereas in movies, God, you can write something and, you know, it never gets made. It gets made 10 years from now, 15 years from now. It's gone through 20 other writers. So by the time it ends up on the screen, you don't even see anything that you wrote left in the movie. So um, there is something very gratifying about TV because it, the turnaround is so much quicker from when you finish a script to when it comes out. But um, but yeah, there is there is just the the way they treat writers in TVs is 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 much cooler, <laughs> much more appropriate than they do in a feature world a lot of times. How many attempts have you made to break into television? Yeah, I think maybe three, really, because the you know the two scripts that I have now, we kind of gone out with them at the same time, and and they have there hasn't really been a concerted effort. It's more like if I get an idea that I feel is better suited for television, um, I'll do it. But you know, like there was a time when I there was a time that I had a project with a really big producer, and it was you know it was our project and another project that she was focused on. The other project like got picked up first and just took off and so then all of a sudden it's like well we can't really focus on two at the time so it's like you know you get you get a little bit like eh yeah but then you just keep going and then you you know you but again my my focus is on features but i definitely am interested in the tv world too because i i just like how now there's so many different ways you you can write six episode like event miniseries now or you can write you know you know anthologies like american horror story you can write you know a 22 there's so many different ways that you can write so there's different kind of stories you can tell so i'm just interested in exploring that world too and kind of creating something that's a little bit more because i grew up watching tv all the time too so it would be cool to have something on tv as well when you finish a screenplay what do you do oh that's a good question um i usually take a nap (laughs) really (laughs) seriously no i do i do i don't i don't go out and do anything crazy like celebrate um I just I get I get very happy and I'm like yes and I send it off and I usually go take a nap because especially when I'm in that last stretch where something is either due or I'm almost done that's when I start getting a little like super anal where I'm going back through everything and I'm paginating the pages and you know one of the tricks I learned is like you know to try to have you know the last line of a on a page be something where they have literally make it a page turner where they have to turn the page to see what the next page is going to be like that was a trick I learned from a friend of mine and so you know, I try to go through and make sure, like, unless it's the very end of a, a really great scene that it, like, every end of every page is something where you have to flip the page to at least finish it. Because if you get them over the next page, they're probably going to keep reading. It's like if you stop them at the end of a page with something like, blah, 
they may not turn the next page. So, you know, I do all those, like, after I've worked on the script itself, then I do those, like, little, like, you know, mind gamey things to, like, make sure it's a page turner. Um, so by the time I'm ready to send it off and I have to go back through it one more time and I have, you know, I, then I take a nap because I've, I've wore myself out. Also, too, is it a sense of accomplishment where yeah. you feel like, okay, I can rest now? Yeah. I'm sure, like up until a certain deadline, it might be a lot of sleepless nights, or maybe not. Just it's sleepless you're nights and it's stress, but yeah. Mm-hmm. No, when I when I finish something, there is definitely a sense of accomplishment where you're like, yes. Especially if you if you know it's good, you know. If you're not sure, then it's kind of like send um, with your fingers crossed. But I'm still gonna go take a nap. But then it's like, but um, but yeah, when you feel like you really nailed it, it's good. But that's again the interesting about the business is you can do a script that you're 100% confident in and your producer loved it and then but one person at the studio reads it and it's like meh and then you're like Ugh. so again it's a roller coaster right it's really you know that's why again I'm, I'm very big on people like doing their own content and trying to you know do your own content because that's if you really want to ensure something gets made done the way you write it that's the best way to do it but but yeah there's it's very very gratifying when you type the end then you mean it and you can hit send to whoever you have to turn the script over to so it's you definitely feel like good job (laughs) so if you're not a writer for hire for something it's your own like passion project and you finish it then what's your process then i usually try to you know then i'll send it to you know my agent or manager to look at and then you know figure out like what places to send it to um or now what i've started doing really because again i'm getting more into like producing my own stuff um, is, you know, connecting with some people that I think have access to invest, you know, more the get into more of the business side of it. Like, okay, well, this might be good for this company and these companies. So let's try to, you know, attach somebody or let's try to, you know, now I've gotten more business minded um, in the last couple of years, especially because, um, again, it's really, you know, I'd love to someday be at the point where I'm running my own company where I have like assistants that can read a bunch of scripts too. And like, we can make a whole bunch of movies, but you know, right now it's like, you know, I, I have, some some good stories that I want to tell and so I'm like all right I got to maximize the chance to get those made so that means if it's something that I've written on my own a lot of times now I'm going out and looking for independent financing as opposed to trying to get it set up somewhere um so that's been a fun like learning experience in the last year or so 